Good morning, Watkinsville. Psalm 83. For the last 59 years at Watkinsville, they have been walking through the Psalms, and maybe over the next 200 years, we'll be able to get to the end of the Psalms. Psalm 83. And the Lord is here this morning. What that means, he's actually going to give us words of life that you could use as a dadgum weapon to fight against the enemy, whatever you're going through this morning. But I got to say, we have a pack of wild animals right down here on the first few rows. And there is no way that as we're turning to Psalm 83 that I cannot say enough how excited I am. Excited I am. And you should be excited too. Did you know that this group of people right here come all the way from Southern California, some of them, and some of them even come from the great city, the University of Georgia, Athens, Georgia, home of the University Georgia Bulldogs, hallowed be thy name. And they have decided to give up their entire summer to helping churches across the country get outside of their walls and into the community. This is an amazing group of people. This week, they're going to be providing 45 hours of programming right here, smack dab in the middle of this town in Westminster. I don't know if any of you parents or grandparents could utilize some of those 45 hours this week. You're going to have Anna Banana, who's going to be leading Tumble. You're going to to have Robin Hood, who's going to be leading Archery, 7.45 in the morning till 5 in the afternoon, led by Spencer Singletary, a local Watkinsville guy. Stand up for him, Spencer. They can see. There you are right there. Ladies, I am sorry to say he is off the market. He is a recently engaged man, this guy right here, and he is getting married this coming year. That's what's about to happen. And did you know that through their leadership and teams like these, get this, this summer, through six weeks, about 200 campers have already made the decision to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior at Connect Camps. It's awesome. And... And over 500 campers already this summer that are not connected to a local church have indicated to teams like these, would you please send the church to follow up with my family so that we can learn more about the person of Jesus Christ and get assimilated into the life of the local church. And that's happening through you rascals. We want you to know as a church, we are proud of you. We are pulling for you. And as a church body, we are praying for you this week. And I'm assuming some of you could use some extra strength this week. Is that true? Some of you? All right. So if you're looking to know one way you can pray this week, this would be one of those ways. All right. I was in about the third grade and I made one of the biggest mistakes of my life. Let this be a lesson for all of you to never repeat my mistake. Sundays were boring in Spartanburg, South Carolina, especially on my street, in my cul-de-sac. My parents watched golf on Sunday afternoon and read the Bloomin' newspaper. There is nothing more boring on the face of the planet. And since we had very little video game uh, access, no cell phones, no Facebook, none of the things that we would do in these days, I, being the great legendary rec director of my street, did what any great rec director would do When my sister Hunter, who we called Bump, and our neighbor Anna was there, I invented a game based on what I could find could be used in this game. And what we had in the driveway on that particular day 
was a 1985 Chevy Cavalier. I made a horrible decision. That car was about as big as your television. And I decided that two of the three of us would go around to the trunk. Yes, I said the trunk of the car, get in the trunk. And the third person, horrible decision, never do this, awful idea, big mistake. The third person, do you remember back in those days how you opened the trunk? Anybody from that era, can you remember? Over there towards the passenger side on the front row, there was what? Some of us older people here, bald-headed like me. You opened a a door, uh, a compartment right there. It's called a glove compartment. And inside that glove compartment was a button. Push the button and what happens to the trunk? Amazing. In my mind, I thought this would be perfect, a great way to spend a Sunday afternoon. So, Bump and Anna got in the trunk. They high-fived. We slapped each other in the face. This is the greatest thing ever. They got in there. The trunk door shut. I was a hero. Several seconds went by. They squealed. They were excited. And that they said, push the button, push the button, push the button. Of course, being a great rec director, I knew exactly where the button was. I pulled over the glove compartment. I pushed the button. We celebrated. This is one of the greatest inventions ever, or so I thought. Round two. It was my turn to get into the trunk with Bump. And I remember about as soon as I laid back in this trunk, oh, my heavens above, what have I done? The trunk door began to shut and the light immediately left the trunk. The air conditioning immediately left the trunk. And my life felt like it was immediately leaving the trunk. It got dark really fast. It got scary really fast. There I was laying down in a hot, sweaty Chevy Cavalier. Bumps, fingernails went into the skin of my forearm. I was sweating, and immediately my fight-or-flight reaction was to beat on the door, the roof of that trunk. Get me out! Get me out! And Anna, who was right there with us, said, to my dismay, I don't remember where the button is. You've got to be kidding me! Get me out! Help! I pounded on the trunk, and she couldn't find the glove compartment where the button was. So do you know what Anna did in the middle of round two of this game? Since she couldn't find the button, she declared that for her, the game was over. And she left our driveway and walked to her house. I was crying out for nobody to hear me. And somebody asked me after the first service, did you ever get out of the trunk? And (laughs) I said, yes, I did. But I can promise you that what happened after I got out made it clear that I will never be doing anything so stupid ever again in my life. Have you ever been there? No, I'm not talking about in the trunk of a Chevy Cavalier. I'm talking about have you been in a scenario in your life where you didn't know how you got in it? You don't know what's going to happen while you're in it, and you have no clue how you're going to get out of it. You're stuck. And everywhere you look around you is a scenario that seems completely hopeless. 
What is the mood? That is the mood. That's Psalm 83. The writer's name is Asaph. Rather than tell you about him, let's just listen to what he's saying. Asaph is describing his trunk. And this is what he says, and it gets off to a smoking hot start. Verse 1. Oh God, do not remain silent. Translated, I'm crying out and you seem like Anna who's gone home in the middle of my mess. Do not withhold your peace. I'm begging you right now, do not be still, oh God. Verse 2. God, look, see how your enemies are prowling, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning, they conspire against your people. Look what they're doing, God. They are plotting against those that you cherish, your people, Israel. Verse 4, the enemy say, come, rally the troops. And the enemy say, let us destroy Israel as a nation so that Israel, so that Israel's name is remembered no more. Verse 5, with one mind, in one accord, all of these enemies that surround these people, they plotted together, they form an alliance against you. What are you going to do about that? Here's Asaph looking here, 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 and everywhere, and it occurs to him that all ten nations that surround him, and he takes verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8 to name them by name. And he names his enemies. A great thing to do when you're standing in the middle of a scenario like this. For you history buffs and for you geography buffs, this is literally where he's looking, right here. He's in Israel. Every nation that surrounds him has teamed up against him. Maybe you've been there. Or maybe you know what it feels like because obviously the context of Psalm 83 is people. This is about real enemies. And maybe you know what it's like. Maybe you do Know what it's like to have somebody or a group of people that literally feel like they want to take you out. They're after you. They're on to you. You don't know why. You don't know how. But you're scared. You're anxious. You're filled with the reality that somebody's out to get me. Or for you, maybe it's not people. Maybe it's actually something health-related. A diagnosis. Something that you've just found out about that was a curveball. Something that you're dealing with. Somebody that somebody you're taking care of is dealing with. Or maybe it's actually finances. A bill's got to be paid. And you don't have a jack clue how you're going to pay it. There's money that's got to go out. And the problem is there's not money enough coming in. Or maybe it's not finances. Maybe for you it's family. Maybe I'm the only one that's got a little bit of kooky in my extended family. Maybe you have a little bit of something that's happening in your family. You don't know how it ended up that way. You don't know how you got into that thing. But nevertheless, it's staring you in the face right now. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's loss. 
you found your confidence in something you knew would never go away until it actually did, and it rattled your cage because it's not there anymore. This is Asaph. Everywhere I look, it's staring me, and I feel like it wants to wipe me out. Maybe your circle looks different from this one, so replace it with your own. This is something that I can relate to. The question that begs is, what does Asaph do? Translated, what do me and you do this week in real life? What do you do when it occurs to you that everywhere you look is a circumstance that's staring you down, ready to take you out? Let's see what Asaph does. Verse 9. What does Asaph do when the moment feels too big for him to handle? The scenario seems too complex. Verse 9. What does Asaph do? He says to himself and to God, verse 9, God, would you do to them as you did to Midian and as you did to Sisera and as you did to Jabin at the river of Kishon? Maybe some of you are already reading about these goofy names and you already know what all, they, all those mean. But for the rest of us out here that don't know what all these names mean, what Asaph's doing in the middle of his circle is he saying, God, I don't know what you're going to do in this moment. So the first thing that's coming back to my mind is what you did in that moment and in that moment and in that moment and in that moment. In this particular case, hey, God, I'm reminding me and I'm telling you that I remember Deborah, Judges chapter 4. I remember what you did when she was standing in her circle. And I'm asking you right now, would you do that again? Hey, God, I remember when Gideon faced an army that felt like it was this big and it occurred to him, he's only got enough people to fight this size army. And I remember what you did on his behalf. And I'm telling you right now, I want you to do it again. Asaph does this because he knows that this is Hebrew culture. This is what God wanted his people Israel to do. Don't forget, remember, don't stop remembering. He was so passionate about it that he gave Israel a Chick-fil-A calendar. And every month of the year on the Chick-fil-A calendar, he would say, hey, hey, Dad, tell this story. Go to the feast, go to the festival, tell this story about God. Hey, Mom, Grandma, Aunt Martha, Big Mama, Big Jim, here's the month. Go to this feast, cook this meal, and tell this story of God. This is what God did. There was one amazing moment where they, they, people went all the way through the Jordan River, and he said to Joshua, I want you to put 12 stones on the other side of the river because I've wired nine-year-olds to come to their parents and say, what do these stones mean? And he wanted the leaders of their time to get great and become legendary in their homes for picking up a stone, telling the story of God, and said, saying, for our family, we will look out, look for the name of God, and we will fear his name forever. That's what I'm trying to do in my home, and maybe you're trying to do that too. My circle right now, it's a mishmash of sort of all of these things. And if you're like me, you get in this circle and it, it sort of makes you cower. Because the circle is real. 29 months ago in, in, in our circle, 
One of our daughters, blonde hair, blue eyed, Ansley Jane Norris, had a had an awful accident, an injury. And for 29 months, we've been in a scenario that I don't know how to fix as a dad. This thing happened, and this thing happened, and this thing happened, and this happened, and this happened, and doctors and us, we don't know what to do. Like, real time, present day. There's no easy fix. I can't say take two of these and call me in the morning. I don't know how we're going to get out of this circle. And so in moments like these, all I know to do is pick up my stone and say, Blondie, when we got married, your mom was sick for six straight months. We had no clue how to do it, and yet God provided healing all those years ago. Hey, Blondie, I don't know how God's going to do it, but a bunch of years ago, we started Connect. We had nothing, no way to make it, and yet 15 years later, God has provided for Connect and now brought a pack of wild animals here to do ministry in this town. So I don't know, I don't know how God's going to do it this time. I just know that he's done it before. Hey, Blondie. I remember what it was like to have miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. And I can't explain it. I don't know why that happened. I just know what it feels like. And I, and I want to tell you that all these years later, God has provided for our family. And the same God that has done it before is the same God that can do it again. So I'm asking you, Dad, what story are you telling about the history of God that your family needs to know in this season? I can't promise you that remembering the story of God will wipe out your circle. I can't tell you that your circumstances will immediately change. But what I can tell you is that it will refuel your hope for what God is able to do, for what God is doing, and what God can do in the future if he decides to do so. That was Asaph's first reaction. That's something you can do this week. But the psalm takes a twist. And on Netflix, this would be the part where it says TV 14 on the top left of the screen. Maybe TV mature. It gets nasty. It gets real. And so from this moment on, I'm not talking to the person in the room that's over here saying, well, I'm so glad I'm not in the circle because that, that would be terrible. I can't imagine I mean, what it's like for these people, to, these, these people over here dealing with. No, for the rest of the psalm, I'm talking to you who's right here in your circle. And in Asaph's circle, it gets real fast in verse 13. Verse 13 Asaph literally says, and I, couldn't, I, sh I shouldn't read the whole thing, but let me just show you just a few phrases starting in verse 13 so that you could just sort of hear what Asaph's heart is like. Like literally look at these phrases. God with white knuckles, give it back to them. Make them like tumbleweed. Would you just make them like chaff before the wind, for goodness sakes? Kick them in the teeth. Pursue them with your tempest. Terrify them with your storm. That's what he feels like. 
cover their faces. Are you serious? Cover their faces with shame? May they ever be ashamed and dismayed? May, their, may they perish in disgrace? That is a nasty prayer. The smart people call that an imprecatory psalm. It's a curse. But what it's really at its heart is Asaph saying, I don't know what to do or what to say. I don't know how to pray this prayer. I just know that I'm in a circle, and if you don't do something about it, I have no hope it's going to require you stepping in and doing what only you can do. So I just, I just looked around this past season. Like I just started flipping through the Psalms. And I just started just looking for phrases. Do other people pray prayer? Surely that's not what the Bible is like. People talking to God this way? There's 150 Psalms. I just wrote them down as fast as I could. Listen to what, the ways the psalmists pray over time. God, I'm crying out. Turn your ear. I'm overwhelmed. This comes straight from Scripture. My life's drawing near to death. I feel like I'm in a pit. I am without strength. I feel like I'm lying in a grave. I feel cut off from your care. I'm in the lowest pit. I cannot escape. Save me, God. I'm sinking to the depths. The floods feel like they're engulfing me. I feel worn out. I'm calling for help. I've, my throat is parched. My eyes are failing. Answer me. Please do not hide your face. Answer me quickly. I'm in trouble. Do not withhold your mercy. Please come near. Protect me. Troubles are all around me. I cannot see. Lord, come quickly and help me. And yes, in the Psalms, there are wonderful praise songs, wisdom songs, royal psalms. It's amazing to read those prayers too. But in the middle of that, we also see lament. We see anger. We see confusion. We see despair. In this case, we see curse. And I don't know if you're like me, but in a weird way, that actually gives me hope. Because on some of my worst moments, when I'm stuck in circles like this, I lose perspective, and I feel like I'm the only person that can relate to what I'm going through. I'm the only person that's ever been through something like this. And part of the hope of Psalm 83 is that God's not looking for your keynote presentation prayer. God's not a speech judge saying, let me listen to this prayer. See, yeah, look at that prayer. Yeah, that one's not, I'm not going to talk to him. That, that one, yeah, he sort of missed a couple of words. I'm not going to do that. No, 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 no. What God is interesting in, catch this, intimacy. What God is looking for from me and you is deep friendship. In to me see. And he's waiting, looking for us as little boys and little girls to cry out to him in ways that a child can. And you've seen this before, and so have I. For us, in our story, this happened just about every time we went to see Santa Claus growing up. 
I'll never forget what it was like, thinking that we were about to have this amazing moment with Santa Claus. And near, here's Neely Peely, happy as a lark. And there's the blonde-haired woman. And you know what she's not saying? Father, how are you doing today? It's great to see you. And I was over there just talking to Santa and some things went sideways and I just need a second of your time. No, that's not what she's saying. You know what she is saying? Ah! Ah! <laughs> and I did not teach her how to talk like that. You know what her arms did? I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know when you're going to do it. I just know that I'm in a circle and I'm crying out to you. Because I know that you're the one person in the room that can do it for me when I need it the most. You've done it before, you're doing it now, and I know that you can do it again. Our God is a faithful God and you can bank your life on him, Watkinsville. There's something that happens in the ear of a good father and a loving parent, when they hear their child cry out, they can discern that cry even in the midst of a busy crowd. And what do they do? They make a beeline to their child to step in to rescue. Every time you come to our Heavenly Father with a need, what you're really doing to Him is you're saying, you are a need Everything I need is found in you. What does Asaph do? He comes to God with raw, real, urgent need for help. Lastly, what in the world does Asaph do when it occurs to him that he's standing in the middle of a circle? Asaph does something that me and you can do literally this week. You can do it in your real life job. You can do it in your real life home. You can do it in your real life circle. Asaph shows us how to do it. At the end of the day, God, verse 18, at the end of this prayer, at the end of me getting it all out, I really want my enemies to know one thing. All these things that are staring me down, I want them to know one thing, and here's the one thing I want them to know. Here we go, Watkinsville. Get a whiff of this. Let them know, here we go, that you, and I love this phrase, whose name is the Lord. I want them to know your name. That you are alone the most high God over all the earth. Hey God, what I really want from those that are staring me down right now I want them to shake in their boots because they know the name of the one that I'm standing with. That they would know that he is not like your little G gods. That is not who he is. That he is the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh God. That he's the most high God over all of the earth. What Asaph's really saying is I know him and I know his name. I know what he's like. I want to see if you agree with him here. He's the creator, Watkinsville. He's mighty and he's strong. Do you believe that today? Okay, maybe not. Let's try again. He speaks everything into being. That's his name. That's what the Lord literally means. Nothing comes before him and nothing's coming after him. Do you believe that today, Watkinsville? 
He is. He is the Lord. He is who he is. Asaph said, I know him and I know his name and I want you to know his name too. He's not backing out. He's not wigging out and he's not stressed out. Do you believe that today, Watkinsville? He's not rattled by your circle. He's not phased by your enemy. He's not thrown off and he's not giving up. Our God is never going to change. He's never going to stop. And he will never, ever, ever be defeated. Do you believe that today, Watkinsville? His name is the Lord. He's the most high God over all the earth. Asaph is saying, he's my provider, he's my sustainer, he is my strength, he is my rock, and he is my faithful fortress. He's done it before. He is doing it now, and he will do it again. He's the one who fights my battles on my behalf. Do you believe that today, Watkinsville? He knows what I need in every circle, and he knows my name in the middle of it. He's healing, he's protecting, he's giving peace, he speaks, and he moves. He gets the craze, he gets the honor, he gets the glory, he gets the credit. Why? Because he's the one that's already fought and won the battle. I declare to you today, Watkinsville, his name is the Lord, and he himself is the most high God over all of the earth. And that's good news for me and for you today. It's a big deal to me because I take names seriously. For all of my life, nobody ever gets my name right. My name's Gabe Norris. I've been called Dave and Jay and everything else in between. I even played in a golf tournament, and on the leaderboard, they spelled my name G-U-B-E Norris. And for a whole week, I became Goob Norris. That's humiliating. What's even more awkward is that all of us know what that's like. You ever been in here or somewhere, and you knew full and well, and you're in a conversation, and you don't know the person's name that you're talking to, and you know they don't know your name? It's impersonal. There's a wall, but everything changes when you call somebody by their name. What Asaph's saying is you can call him by his name. You can do that. If I need a doctor, I want somebody that's an MD. If I need a pharmacist, I want Norma Thomas who's got a farm D. If I need a great professor, I want somebody that is a Ph.D. And if I'm standing in the middle of one of life's circles, I'm looking for an L-O-R-D. His name is the Lord. Asaph cried out to him by name, and you can too this week. That's great news for me and for you. So i got to ask you, what name has God given you that you would call him? for this season of your story by name. Maybe it would give you hope to claim that name over your story in this season. Well, we could shut it down just like that. Look how easy that was. Shut it down. We could all go to lunch. Have a great lunch. Wonderful lunch. We could have chit-chatty conversations around here. Shake a hand, slap a high five. We could be done. But if we did that, I really think we would miss 
the actual best news of Psalm 83. And I'm just curious, before we go, is anybody interested in some good news here from Psalm 83 this morning? We don't have much in common. Me and you don't. My circle might literally have nothing to do in common with your circle. Your circle might not have anything in common with the circle sitting beside you. But what we do share in common, Watkinsville, is that we were all born into the same circle. It was a horrible scenario, except in this case, they weren't the enemies, we were the enemies. Adam and Eve sinned, and, and their sin now flows through my veins and my carotid artery, and it flows in your bloodstream as well. That's a horrible thing. Because that separates us from God. It keeps us from enjoying intimacy, deep friendship with God. Our hearts, Jeremiah tells us, are awful. Our heart is a liar, deceitful, and beyond cure, and that's terrible news. All of us were born into this. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the worst part of that is that the wages of sin is actually death. The law says that sin has to be punished, and it must be punished by the shedding of blood. And that's bad news for me and for you today. But I've got great news for us. And you're staring at me, and I don't know you well enough to know if you're interested in great news, but I am here to tell you that the great news of Psalm 83 is that God actually did to his son Jesus what Asaph wanted God to do to his enemies. For God so loved us, the whole world, me, you, your neighborhood, this community, even Florida Gator fans. God so loved the world that he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up on behalf of all of us. So that by grace and through faith, we could actually trust him with our lives. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might be called the righteousness of God in him. He was crushed for our sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace with God was on his back. All of us, we're like sheep, man. We've gone our own way. But God has laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. That is great news. That is great news. He lived a perfect life that you could not live. He died the death that you deserve to die. He was buried and then he defeated our enemy once and for all. He rose again. He's not a dead Savior. He's an alive Savior and he's in this room right now. And at the same time, he's sitting at the right ear of Abba, interceding on your behalf, talking to Abba about you. He has filled those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior with the power of his Holy Spirit to be with us, to bear fruit in us, to make us like the person of Jesus so that we could go stand in the middle of our circle and not spend our lives being afraid of it. God made his son Jesus, who humbled himself even to death on a cross, became that obedient. And in that moment, you know what God did? Somebody say what? What did God do? 
God elevated Jesus and exalted Jesus, yes, Jesus to the highest place and gave Jesus the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every single tongue would confess that Jesus Christ, get this, Jesus, your name, look at this, Jesus, your name literally is the Lord. That is who he is. And that's what he's inviting us to call him today. And that's the invitation that you have for coming to this service this morning. He comes before you. He's already preparing a path for you. Right now he's standing beside you fighting like crazy. Fighting off your enemies even while he's providing for you. And behind you, he's got goodness and mercy just following after you all the days of your life. His name is the Lord, and he's the most high God over all the earth.